You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Howdy, Stella. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing great. We're recording at a different time than normal. It's bright and early here today, and I have all the energy reserves of the day, so I feel good. How about you? Um, yeah, you're always bright, bright-eyed bright and bushy-tailed. This episode <laughs> uh, is a special edition, really, and you thought of it, and it's such a good idea. I'm so glad you did think of it, because it's it's so important that we acknowledge the challenges that all families have when there's mental health issues in the family and there's, there's, you know, special times coming up, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, any sort of birthdays, any of those special events, they are excruciatingly difficult very often for anybody with mental health issues. And it has a certain flavour, I would say, when it's gender issues. So you thought of this idea, especially for, you know, we're putting it in especially for the right date so that to help families that are navigating this. So I know you wrote something about this. So you've, you, you're very well um, prepared for this. Uh, somewhat. I mean, I wrote <laughs> this a while ago. For those of you listening, I write. I, I used to write regularly this newsletter. And it was um, basically the idea was, you know, I would be inspired by interesting things that I've seen, whether it's a movie or a book or a poem or a song or a podcast. And I would reflect on how it's related to gender questioning teenagers And so I wrote one about extended family and I had seen the movie Whale Rider, which is a really great film about this girl um, from New Zealand who's part of a Maori tribe and she um, is very connected to the culture. She wants very badly to train in the ways of the ancestors, but because she's a girl, it's not really part of the tradition and the custom. And long story short, I mean, she... Her grandfather, who is really hoping to find the next male successor to this lineage, is training all the boys in the town. Nobody's really taking it seriously. And she starts secretly training behind her grandfather's back in all of these traditional ways. So she's training in this stick fighting and um, she ends up having a challenge with one of the boys in her grandfather's class and she beats him at the stick fighting. And the boy realizes that she's, Paikia is her name, that she's very special. And the grandfather is quite resistant. And he's angry that she's kind of bucked the tradition and has done something against his wishes. And it turns out that she really is kind of destined to be um, the successor of this tribe. And she ends up communicating in a way with this big pod of whales And Whale Rider is the name of the film. This is an old story from their tradition about how their ancestors came to that place, I believe. And it's just such a beautiful movie. I recommend anyone who's interested to watch it. It's fantastic. But what I really appreciated about the movie is how we can reflect on the importance of our grandparents, our extended network, our families, our traditions, our history, to give us a sense of identity. And... um, You know, for many families who are dealing with a gender questioning teen, 
Sometimes they feel very cut off from their own families because of their child's kind of experimentation and a fear of not knowing what will happen when our relatives find out about this. And of course, the holidays, especially the first year after COVID, feels like this place where families will be colliding with their aunts and uncles and cousins and all this stuff. And so I really wanted us to do an episode on what considerations families have to take when they have a gender questioning teen around the time of the holidays. Yeah, you raised so many good uh, points. The first thing I wanted to ask just about that film, could you watch that, let's say, with a 13-year-old? Oh, yes, definitely. It's, It's age appropriate for all ages. The main character is probably, gosh, I'm so bad at guessing ages. She's probably like 12 or 13, something like that. So it's appropriate for kids. Okay, I'm going to watch it. Um, I think that, um, well, I know because I've studied it, you know, families have fragmented in many ways because of the ease of travel, because of our freedom to kind of live where we want to live and work at what we want to live. In many ways, families have become very insular units. So it's the nuclear family that is on its own effectively. You've you've met your, your partner, you have your children and you are on your own. And then when trouble strikes the family, it's, it's, it feels like our kind of private tragedy. Well, back in the day, previous to, let's say, two generations ago, you had the extended family. You had granny down the road and you had your sister. And they were annoying, let's face it. They were <laughs> nosing, they were getting in, but they were also involved. It was our tragedy. And you could spread it out a little bit. It wasn't all on the, the parents' shoulders. These days, it's very much on the ch- parents' shoulders and they're, they're buckling under the strain of that. It's, it's not working out well. That insularity, it, it doesn't work in so many different ways. And not only is there a geographical distance with some families, there's an emotional distance with a lot of families. And there's all, almost a sense of competitiveness because we all parent in different ways. And it's very, very difficult. I know this uh, in my own family, like I parent one way, somebody else parents another way. And then if your parenting goes wrong, and that's how you see it, you feel defensive and embarrassed and ashamed and you don't want to let anybody in on it. And so your, your instinct is to say, leave us alone. We're working this out. We won't tell anybody. And we lose a lot. And I know, I know families can be difficult. I know extended families cannot get it. But at the same time, the lonely isolation of just a nuclear family dealing with something as huge as this seems to me to be too much to bear and it would be better if there was more of the family involved. So even if granny was saying her old fashioned thing and even if the auntie was jumping in, that perhaps it makes it less intense and less um, focused on the inner family. It's just something I really think is heightened around around these special occasions. I think that's such a great point. But what's coming up to me is that when it comes to the gender questioning teen, I find that it's very important, just like we talked about with couples, right, to be on the same page. I think it's also important that if family is going to be involved and included, that you recruit selectively for who you want to know and who you want to talk to about your kid's gender questioning and who you want to be part of the, you know, the leaning in with love and structure, just like we always talk about, right? Because if there's a family 
where maybe mom and dad are on the same page about how to handle things and and how to support their kid. Maybe they have an aunt or a cousin or an uncle that's incredibly affirmative. And that involvement can put a bit of a wedge between the child and their parents. So while I agree with you, broadly speaking, I think it is important for parents to know um, who they can really open up to and who will be kind of like a partner with them and an ally with them. That's a really good point. And I knew the whole time I was talking, I knew that there was a major but in what I was saying. There was a major flaw in it, <laughs> even though I do stand by my point that the isolation is very dreadfully uh, isolating. But like there is that point that you there's been a real phenomenon within this phenomenon, which is the well-meaning, misinformed adult really mm-hmm. riding roughshod in children's lives and having a huge impact. I know Genspect have uh, created a brief guidance for family and friends, and Mm. it's a particular um, place in my heart, this brief guidance, because it's specifically for family and friends who might love your child and who don't know much about this situation, and they might think they know a lot more than they know. And this is just a brief guidance just to tell them, well, here's a few things that you might want to think about. And I'm really glad we wrote it. I'm really glad we provided it because it's I do feel there are a whole group of people who love your kid, who who want to help and who might be very misguided in how to help. Yeah. And I will definitely include that in the notes. It sounds great. And I'm thinking about a friend of mine, a really good friend who's kind of a, a, a relative through his marriage is a teenage boy who's questioning his gender. And, you know, even though he hasn't coordinated with the parents explicitly, he's been asking thoughtful questions. He's been trying to be a place of support and trust, but also, you know, challenging this young person a little bit and saying, you know, if I were your age going through this, I'd think that too, but give it some time. You know, you're really young. Don't rush into medical things. So I think... There are people who, even if they're not explicitly gender critical in the same way that the parent is, could also serve a really important role of being this kind of neutral person that the young person might listen to a little bit more, might trust a little bit more. So, you know, all of this just to say that it's really important for there to be other people in the young person's life who can diffuse the responsibility a little bit, because sometimes when you do have this nuclear family where it's just the mom and dad and the child and there's nobody else in their lives. It can feel as though the entire burden rests on the shoulder of the parents. And that is just so disproportionate. And so if you have people you love and trust who are a part of your extended network, it can be really important to loop them in. Yeah. And they can do things like they can bring them to an activity, maybe something you haven't the energy to go to or something that they might be interested in. could be a concert or a film or whatever. And you could ask them, you could say to them if they are a good, a good member of your family, like along the lines of if you don't mind, don't talk about gender until you know your stuff. You know what I mean? But otherwise, please bring them out because um, it is a really complex world. That's all. You're not saying just until you know your stuff, you know what I mean? And, and, and no more than that, if you follow me, so that it gives a bit of space to going out. And because a lot of the time, these kids do need help in being expanding their world. They do need help in being brought out. They are living a very isolated world in their bedroom. And I think a lot of tension 
can be um, centered on these occasions, these kind of Thanksgiving family dinners. I'm going to blow all their minds because I'm going to look so different and everybody's going, I'm revealing. It's like the grand reveal, which has been all over TV for some years now. You know what I mean? And they like this concept of the grand reveal because it appeals to the dramatic teenage brain. And it is dramatic and it is like neuroscience has shown that they do like the dramatic only because it's a it's a half constructed brain. In fairness to teenagers, they aren't fully constructed as a brain. And so there's certain things they're given to. And so the kind of the, the, the wildness almost of the of the reveal is can be appealing and can be horrifying for the parents. And so much can be centered, so much tension can be centered on the child being determined to show themselves in their true gender and the parents being determined not to allow this to occur. And I see it, we see, you and I see it, we see it at Christmas, we see it at Thanksgiving, we see it at the end of year, these proms and things like this. The, all these big events and the teenager rises to the big event. And it, it, this is where I think everybody has to be shrewd and wise and kind of keep their cool heads and think, what do we need to do as a family so that we don't go into major drama because it could, it could skip into that. Yeah, easily. And you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm nodding about the prom, but I have not had that same experience with the family dinners and things. So what I, what I have typically seen is that, I mean, my, my belief is that this is so socially mediated in terms of peer culture, more so than parent culture. Sometimes I think the kid is trying to draw a specific response from the parent, just like we talked about with Helena. But a lot of times I see going to prom in a tux is a big reveal, a tuxedo, right? But I have met a lot of young people who actually have been um, kind of nervous to see family that hasn't seen them in a while. And, and part of the reason is because the kids recognize that Aunt Flo or whatever. I don't know why I said Aunt Flo. That's like a name for your menstrual cycle. <laughs> but Let's keep pick on, another aunt keep going with Aunt Flo. <laughs> so Aunt Flo hasn't seen you in three years. And you know that when she saw you last, you looked just like good old fashioned yourself as a kid, as a girl who you're not anymore. And when, when Aunt Flo sees you now, she's going to see that you're obviously looking very different. You're obviously experimenting with a different kind of identity. And there will be questions to answer for. Or there's going to be this awkward kind of elephant in the room that nobody is going to really address. And I, I'm, I'm positive that there are kids, because I've consulted with the parents of kids who like want to make this big grand announcement. But I also know there are a lot of kids who their gender identity is this really personal, deep, deep struggle. And they are kind of embarrassed by it in a way. And they're, they're feeling really reluctant to have to acknowledge that like, well, yeah, I literally changed my whole entire way of being. I used to be on one side of the spectrum and now I'm on the other. And that's kind of hard to account for when you, your cousins are all just like living their normal lives. And I, here I show up at Christmas dinner looking like a different person. It's really, really difficult because it's really difficult on everybody because people don't know how to respond. Should you say, oh, you look different? Or should you say, um, ignore it 
and it's mm-hmm. blindingly obvious you're ignoring something. People don't know how to respond and it kind of inflicts upon everybody. Am I meant to say it? Am I not meant to say it? They're talking differently. They're actually using a different name. The pronouns are different. Am I meant to comment about this or not? Am I meant to preempt? Am I, should I tell um, extended family, by the way, there's been a seismic change. But I've seen this in other versions. I've seen this, let's say, with eating disorders, where the child has lost a phenomenal level of weight. And the parents don't know, should I tell everybody, listen, you're going to get a fright when you see them, because they're going to look incredibly different. And nobody really knows how to navigate this. Like, should you give them the heads up or not? Is there an honesty in, in just saying, please respond in any way you wish, because honestly, you might get through to the child. Do you know what I mean? Or, you know, the, the, the genuine response, rather, the, the kind of authentic response of is, is one response. Another response is it being planned and it can be orchestrated within an inch of its life. OK, they're going to look like this. And if you say this, I'll say that and we'll say this. And in the middle of it all, the child in a way, is that kind of, I often think, kind of half proud and half shy, kind of thinking, here I am in my true self, and um, how are they all responding to me? And I I, I have definitely seen a lot of um, scenarios where the, the child is kind of shy in front of the grandparents, kind of shy about it all, but still kind of holding their their line. You know what I mean? They're determined they're going to present and it's a big deal. It's a lot of tension. And I just think the parents, the, the, the tension is landed on the parents' shoulders in a way. Just like when the waiter and they're out in a restaurant and the waiter calls the, the misgenders the child and the child immediately looks to the mother like, save this situation, please. Do you know what I mean? It's like the, I find a lot of the time it's on the parent's shoulder. They're supposed to navigate the child. Sorry, do you gender. mean like if the waiter uh, identifies the child by the gender they're trying to present as no, or the, the birth other, sex gender? The birth sex. Oh, I and see. The, let's say that the girl, mm-hmm. maybe it's a biological girl and, and he says something about girls or something and the teenager looks daggers at the waiter and mother saying, mother, save me. Tell him he's just misgendered me. And the mother's there going, oh, because it's so hard. Am I meant to correct the waiter? Am I not? Am I meant to tell granny? Am I not? Is it better if I do? Is it better if I don't? It really feels damned if you do and damned if you don't. And I'm here to say, like, we have no secret wisdom. We do know that this is incredibly difficult and it is worth a lot of thought. And I think I hate to be flaky therapist, but I feel it's very individual. It very much depends on the family. How are they going to respond? Is it going to cause war or is there going to be understanding? Are they going to presume they know better than you and take over? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think this is really a reflection of where the, the parents are in their own process of trying to metabolize everything that's happening. Because a family that that feels incredibly ashamed and distressed and almost embarrassed and just has that dark, dark feeling around this issue, I think are, are likely to keep it a secret as much as they can. And then I've met other families who, like I said, they kind of recruit people in their family and they, they, they know that the support is important for them. And actually this is a bit tricky too, because sometimes a young person 
Like we're talking about these different categories. There are some young people who want mom to get on the phone and call everyone in the family and tell them that their kid is trans. And then, yeah, yeah, hurry up because this is, I announced it so everyone needs to know. And then there's another kid that is really privately struggling and actually feels a bit betrayed if they discover that mom has shared this information with her loved ones or like her family or whatever. So it's so complicated. And just to to your point, this is very individualized because although we see themes popping up, each family really has to figure out how to deal with this themselves. Um, I do want to say that we can sometimes in, and I've done it myself and I have utter empathy and understanding for people who do it. But in these times of trouble, let's say if your family feels really hard hit and they're really, really having the fight, they're in the middle of it and it's really difficult. And um, you can feel very intense about your traditions and your, we always do this on, on the night before Thanksgiving and by God, we're going to do it this time. And you can be very intent and you can hold very tightly onto those traditions and sometimes, honestly, you'd be better off giving it a miss this year. You might always do it, but this year, honestly, it's hard. And maybe you need to give yourself a break and maybe do something easier because you're, you're being hurt too hard. I've done it myself in a few different contexts where I was just, I became almost crazed about this, but this has to happen because we do this this year and it's proof that I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it together as opposed <laughs> to, honestly, this is so hard, I should let it go. It'll come back. There'll be other Thanksgivings. There'll be other Christmases. There'll be other years. Yeah. It doesn't have to be every year. And it could be a, a, a gesture to yourself of kindness and self-compassion to say, oh, actually, we'll, we'll let that go. So many fights actually happen around those specific traditions. And we were all getting in the car because we had to do this. <laughs> the entire day is ruined because we clung on to that one event that we always do. Yeah, I mean, this this reminds me of the fact that like for so many people, the holidays are really exhausting and we do have these high expectations of this kind of nostalgic epic, like we'll remember this forever kind of night. And you're talking about just giving yourself permission to have a low stakes holiday. Yeah. And this is the same, you know, I, I say this to parents about the kinds of conversations that they're wanting to have with their kids. And I say sometimes just enjoying some low stakes quality time where it's low pressure, just have fun, make jokes together. That's okay too. So it's almost like a parallel, you know, like we expect these big momentous, deep conversations, which of course they're necessary to have every now and then. And same with holidays. So I, I hear that. And then I, I also know that sometimes The opposite thing happens where there's so much dread built up about the holiday or, you know, a kid seeing their cousins for the first time in a long time and just thinking like, what are they going to say about my hair? What are they going to do? And sometimes it's actually not that big of a deal. And you bring the families together and the kids hang out and have fun and get along as though nothing is happening. So it's, again, it's just so individualized. And sometimes all of the hype, I think the hype is the problem. That's the thing I'm extracting from these two examples. Having simple, um, flexible expectations, being able to go with the flow, being able to adjust as necessary and 
keeping it um, reasonable, I think is probably helpful for everybody in the situation, whether you decide to do the big holiday tradition or not. Having reasonable expectations while your child is going through a huge identity uh, crisis, transformation, exploration, seems reasonable just to keep it Keep it low. Keep it and light. You're right. There can be a huge sense of dread, a huge sense of dread around it. And sometimes like kids are coming back from college and they're going to be changed in a quite significant. They might be medicalized. They could be completely different. Their voices could be different. They could have uh, facial hair. And in a way that the, the parents are for the first time seeing it for the first time. They know knew it was coming. They knew it was happening. But now they're actually... And they don't know how to navigate this. They don't know how to navigate it. And it's Thanksgiving. So it's like double whammy. What are we meant to do here? And in a way, I suppose I'm I'm always in favor of authenticity, but I do think keep it low, keep it low key, low stakes. You know, think about the things that you do enjoy still with with your children. Like, do you both enjoy certain comedians? Do you both enjoy certain films, certain food? Do you know what I mean? Remind yourself of all the things that you do connect on and bring it to them. Bring it over that direction as opposed to we're going to talk about gender identity and I'm going to explain to them the concept of Robert Money and John Stoller. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I could see you doing that, Stella, (laughs) should you be in that position. I would. I would. I would. And um, I'd be wrong. (laughs) I'd be wrong. And I can see how, because when you've got information in your head and you think if only they could see the light, if they could see inside my head, they will see the light. And therefore, I need to impart that information. And timing really matters. We've said that a few times. Timing really matters. And Thanksgiving is often not the time. Thanksgiving is to talk about whether the potatoes are, are dry or not. And do you know what I mean? Things like that and make yourself laugh and kind of reconnect in a warm way that yeah. if at all possible, it mightn't be possible, but in some level kind of have a laugh and bring it all down a, a, a level or two. And you know what I mean? See if you can just enjoy it. I do think a lot of, uh, I know I've spoken to a lot of parents who kind of say, I'm going to pin that smile on my face. And I'm like, nah, you don't have to pin any smile on your face. You, you're, you can go, you can go soft on yourself. You can go easy on yourself and you can, you can be yourself. I know a lot of them will say, well, myself is crying and devastated. So in a way, it's kind of trying to get the simple pleasures it's very, very difficult for some parents. It's very, very difficult for some children. And where can we get some simple pleasures, some common ground, somewhere that we can meet that it's actually not that bad, that you think, actually, you know what? There was a lot of tension around this these few days. And you know what? We did make each other laugh a few times. And we did yeah. connect. And we went for a walk. And the breeze was on our face. And actually, it, was, it, it had its moment. Yeah. Yeah, being present with these little moments, they're, they're sometimes fleeting, but they're pleasure and they're enjoyable. And they're, you know, you might feel just at at peace or calm for a short moment. And that's really important. You know, I, I, I'm thinking back about something we talked about a moment ago, which is that I think for a lot of young kids, especially the young teens, right? So 17 and under, uh, 16 and under, maybe this is so peer mediated. So something I hear a lot, and this was true pre-COVID because of course there was this whole year where everybody was stuck at home, but some things that I used to hear a lot are things like, um, you know, 
on the weekends, my trans identified kid kind of becomes her old self again. She's kind of normal around us when it's just the family. But then like Sunday night, when she's thinking about getting ready for school the next day, she becomes dysphoric and agitated. Or during spring break, when we were together as a family on vacation, she was totally her old self again. And the gender stuff didn't seem to be an issue. It's when she is ready to go to school or when she's with her friends that this is a problem. So from that lens, again, because this is, I think, so peer mediated for certain kids, it's actually really valuable to think about how to spend this holiday time. And I think you're right. There are some families who the dynamic when everyone's together is very tense and exacerbates people's aggravation. In those cases, you may want to take that low stakes, chill holiday on your own. But if you have a family that generally your kids love their cousins, enjoy spending time with their favorite aunts and uncles, and this is a a time that reminds the child of their real self, It's really important to take that up. And one of the things I've learned from studying and reading about, you know, radical groups or ideological groups or cults is that there's a way that they divorce people from their actual identity and replace it with this like fake persona. And the wise interventionists who recommend a gentle approach rather than something really extreme, if you do have a loved one who's joined some kind of group like this, is to very gently, without rubbing their nose in it, help the person remember their actual self, the things they used to love, you know? Sometimes these groups are very restrictive and there's, like I'm thinking about like groups that you go and join and you live in like an ashram or something, All of the pleasures of life have been stripped and it's very work oriented. And what they say is like, if you can send your loved one, like a a batch of their favorite cookies that remind them of being home, it might just kind of give a moment in their mind to say like, oh, the things I used to love. I remember that. And there's something about this trans identity for certain kids that it seems like a chore and they are miserable and it's so hard and they're forcing themselves into this guy role or girl role in some cases of, of male to female. And if it is taxing and it's not really benefiting them, it could be really valuable to have that holiday time where they're eating their favorite foods and they're seeing their cousin they haven't seen in a while. So for the kids who are being made miserable by this, I think if you can keep it light and enjoy that positive quality time in traditions, that could actually be helpful to remind them. Yeah, I think that's so wise. I think there's uh, we all have our favorite, even if you you come from a, a difficult background, you do have favorite places in the house where you sit and where you do your thing. And your kid will have it just as much as I have it, just as much as the parent have it. And if you can try to kind of recreate that, if you follow me, that they did like, you know, watching whatever film, some silly film with crisps or something or chips, you call it or something. And that was a scene that they often liked. And you could kind of throw down their blanket or something like that. And you know what I mean? You You could kind of so that they, despite themselves, enjoy it. It can really reconnect a person to themselves. Just reconnect with the pleasures. And um, I do remember when Helena was speaking with us and she said, when I was trans identified and I hadn't medicalized, I was on a high. I was, you know, infallible. And then she said, when she medicalized, she said loneliness. I felt lonely. That was the word that she said that most kind of reflected 
where she was at. And so if a child is medicalized, they might be feeling very, very lonely. And so if you can, in some level, in a subtle way, not straight in, do you feel lonely, but with their favorite blanket and their favorite dinner, or maybe let's stick on that film, let's put on the fire. I don't know if you'd have a fire in your, but let's do all the comfort things to make it warm and soulful. And very much keyed in with what did they like as opposed to what do you like? And you might have the family tradition. That's what makes me feel good. But maybe as a gesture to your kid who's having a hard time and lost their sense of self, maybe the key gesture is to key in what would they, what would make them find themselves because they're just checking in with themselves again. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for this show. We're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for sponsoring us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. Now, back to the show. Oh my God, that's such, that's so moving. Especially for, for we have now kind of shifted into the, the young adult who's medicalizing off at college. It's so hard because they probably feel as though they don't, they may not feel as though they have that home anymore. And as hard as it is, if you are able to creating that space of warmth and love and wow, I missed you. It's good to see you. Even though in the back of your mind, you might be thinking, Oh my gosh, what have you done? Or you look different. I don't recognize you. It's so important for that young adult to still feel like, they always have a home in your presence. This is attachment. I mean, this is basic attachment. Yeah. And, and it's really important. Families and parents can feel like they're the only family who are navigating this. This has been navigated in many different ways. And um, for for example, uh, you know what I mean? I've, I, I read a brilliant account just recently of um, the, 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 the adult child had come home and he, he was alcoholic and the parents were watching him basically disintegrate over the d- dinner table and they didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know whether to say you're drinking too much, but they knew if they did, there'd be war. They knew that that everybody was looking, everybody was avoiding, everybody was... Do you follow me? So th- this does happen. And it's really, really, really hard on the family. It's hard on everybody. And so you do, in a way, have to kind of... While you're being very loving and connecting and looking out for the child, I think it's important as well that the parents think this is going to be a strain on me. I'm bringing the stakes lower. I'm making it easier for myself because I'm, I'm kind of foregoing a few things that will be a bit more difficult. But I'm also going to leave. I'm going to get out of the house for, you know, an hour because I'm going to go over to my friends or I'm going to ring my friend and I'm going to go for a walk while I'm ringing my friend to vent because my brain is a storm. Of, of distress and tension and I need to pick wisely so I might say can I ring you at two o'clock mm. and can we chat and you pick somebody good it's not somebody who's going to annoy you <laughs> somebody good <laughs> because you know this day is going to be very hard and I'm taking some time off to kind of go to my bedroom or to go outside and to have a chat on the phone with somebody who gets it so I can say this is happening 
that's happened. And now I'm supposed to be this. And where am I going? And you know what I mean? You've got to get out of the house to get back in sometimes, yeah. you know what I mean? So you can keep yourself together because it's really, really hard for many of them. Yeah, I think that's that's helpful because parents need to feel like they have permission to just say what they really think with a trusted confidant. It's almost like kind of letting letting that out can kind of lower the tension in your own body. I think that's helpful and important. You know what just came to mind, Stella? I know that there are families with a an adult child off at college and maybe the holidays represent the first time that they don't spend the holiday with their kid. Sometimes the kid is like, oh no, I'm going to spend the holiday with my partner, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, whatever. My glitter family. And yeah, my, my glitter family. I mean, sometimes that's what's happening and the kid is really cut off the family and parents are like, okay, well, we're going to buy your ticket for Christmas. When do you plan to come? And they're like, oh, I'm not coming. Or they never text back or something. That That's very hard, which is really different from the young kid, right? Because we talked about what do you do when you're navigating? Like, what do I say to my mom and dad when they see our child looks very different? But what about when the kid's just not there? And the rest of the family's like, where's so-and-so? You know, ha- have you seen that? And I'm sure in your parent groups, this is going to come up around the holidays. Yeah, it does come up and people can feel devastated and people can feel relieved, depending on the person, because some people say, yeah, good decision. None of us are ready for this. And other people can feel like we're losing each other. We're losing a connection and we are losing each other. I think, yeah, if you do feel like that, it's perfectly fine to insert yourself back into your child's life in a different time. It doesn't have to be around Thanksgiving, if you follow me. You can let Thanksgiving go and you can say, in two weeks, I'm coming down to see you. You you know what I mean? Rather than kind of bludgeon in, this is Thanksgiving and by God, I'm going to get you home because this represents everything. It doesn't quite represent everything. Sometimes it represents a child trying to individuate and trying to say, "I'm, I'm independent, if you follow me. I know when I left home, I was 17 and I didn't go home for Christmas that first year. And in in Ireland, that would be a very big deal, like uh, perhaps more than in other countries. And it was important to me. It was something to do with I'm doing my own thing. I'm I'm doing my own thing. I need to do it. And I'm very glad I did. I don't know. It was really important for me. It really was. It's individuating. It's independent. What what did you do? Can can I ask? I stayed with my boyfriend and we had a lovely Christmas. It was crazy. It's lovely yeah. though. But the point was, I definitely needed not to go home. It was definitely, for me, for something in me, it was something I needed to do. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're losing them forever. Things can be going on in, in somebody. Like when a child is moving from child to adulthood, they're trying to navigate all sorts of things. And one of them could be that, that I need to strike a kind of a, a position that I am. I'm separate. And that could be we've you and I have often circled back on. It often feels like the child is trying to separate. And maybe one of the ways they're going to separate is they didn't come home for Christmas or Thanksgiving and they felt right now I'm an adult and I can stop reacting and I can start living for myself. I I can't even tell you how right that sounds to me. There's something very powerful about being the kid, 
even if you're a 28-year-old kid, because you are following along with the traditions that your family has set forth. And if you are able to say, you know what, this year I'm going to do my own thing, it feels like this kind of a marker of independence or of being able to branch out. And that might be really important. I mean, it's funny you say that because my family, I mean, I think this is very cultural thing. Like Egyptian families just spend the holidays together. There's unless there's like a financial barrier to where you can't, this is almost unheard of to do your own thing. It's like not, it's not even a concept. And during COVID when nobody could fly, we cooked our own Christmas dinner in, I was in Houston and I had family all over the place and we had the excuse of COVID, <laughs> but also it was like, oh, we, we can do our own thing rather than, you know, what we've always done. And of course, you know, there are Christmases that I think back about with my family where I say, oh my God, that was such a fun Christmas. I really miss that Christmas. And then other times when Christmas does feel tense and stressful and like, we always do this particular thing. So we have to do this particular thing, even though it's exhausting and tiring and everyone's burnt out, you know? So it it is an interesting thing, just the way these holidays mark our dynamics within a family and where we are in terms of not hierarchy, but like obligation and independence. Like there are all of these complicated kind of dynamics wrapped up in what happens during the holidays. Yeah, very much so. And like you said, it's kind of, it can feel symbolic for people. It's like, now I'm an adult and I'm going to do my own thing. And it can feel liberating and I wouldn't get in the way of it. If if your child is determined to do their own thing, I'd be reluctant, if they're an adult child, I'd be reluctant to push in on that and insist and kind mm-hmm. of say, you know, you, you do that or and, you know, you'll you'll break your father's heart or something like that. I, I don't think... It's, it's the role of parents to do that. And like I say, it goes back to that nuclear family that have been that little bit more insular than other generations. And it's like, we can't break the family. And it's like, well, where's that going? Because very soon your adult child is going to be extended family because they're going to have family of their own. And so it doesn't work. The nuclear family just works for 20 years. And then the adults, the children become adults and they become an extended family. So we have mm. to navigate into an extended family on some level. And it it can become really difficult. It can become really um, just very, very frightening, especially, I think, for for the parents who are thinking, I've lost control. I've lost control. And Thanksgiving is symbolizing my lack of control, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, no, you're going through a hard time right now. And Thanksgiving is a time that you shouldn't put extra pressure on yourself. You should bring it down down a a level. I do think, though, um, just to kind of talk a little bit about I suppose that the younger kids, because we've talked a little bit about the older older kids and they want to individuate, the younger kids can feel really keyed up about this. And you said, I thought, a really golden point, which is it's an opportunity for them to kind of check in with themselves because they've been socially very much mediated mm-hmm. or they've been, they've been very socially impacted and now they're hanging out with family. And you've got an you've got an in. I don't like to put pressure on parents, but you do have an in for these few days that you mightn't have again. This is where tech really needs to be kind of focused on, 
because easily the kid could, you could miss the kid because you haven't put in a few ground rules around Thanksgiving and tech and they've gone upstairs and they're on tech all day. And you think, actually, I don't know, Thanksgiving came and went and they were barely there because they were online the whole time. And every time I looked at them, they were online. Now you're getting the message from us now. <laughs> if you can at all, try and, and, and foresee it. See how the tech is going to go and see what you're going to do. Maybe rules around the kitchen. Maybe there's no tech for anybody in the kitchen. Maybe no tech um, in certain rooms, bedrooms or sitting rooms. Certainly, I think the kitchen is a good one. Times, maybe certain times you're going to say no tech after whatever time or no devices before whatever time. But in some household rules, you know what I mean? Just like you might put in household rules about junk food or you might put in household rules about alcohol. Put them in and think about the kids. No drinking this year, kids. (laughs) (laughs) But we do do it. We do like the adult child is not allowed to drink vodka at eight in the morning. The uh, none none of us are allowed to eat McDonald's in the morning. Well, I hope not. Do do you know what I mean? (laughs) They do have a breakfast menu at McDonald's, so I'm sure some people are. But I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're speaking my language. I mean, it's funny because the other day, I think I texted you, how have we not done an episode on tech yet? I mean, the first thing that I ever advise parents is get the internet under control. That's the first First, thing. second and third. Internet, internet, internet. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that we haven't really talked about that yet. But yes, I think that's such a good point. I always say, rather than targeting the child specifically or the trans content specifically, broaden it and say, you know what? Let's watch this social dilemma movie together. Oh, wow, look at that. None of our brains do very well on a lot of social media use. So we're going to implement some household rules that we're all going to follow, including mom and dad. So, of course, the rules have to be uh, applicable. They have to be, like, doable. But I think that's a very good point. During the holidays is a time for us to spend time together, for us to get out of our normal routines. So maybe this is a good way to kickstart some sort of boundaries and guardrails around internet use. I think it's a really good opportunity to do that. And because the holidays are this different kind of time where everyone is out of the normal routine, your kids may be a little bit more amenable to those kinds of rules. Now, granted, I would imagine a lot of kids are thrilled to be off of school so they could catch up on their gaming or whatever. So, you know, make some space for the things they really enjoy doing. But getting some handle on the internet is very, very important. Yeah. And this is where you need to get shrewd about what internet, because it's so massive now. You know what I mean? Because there's gaming, there's a family TV, then there's um, them sitting kind of on their device quietly in the corner, not talking to anybody. There's lots of different flavors. And that's where you need to kind of, as the adult, think, okay, what do I not want or what do I think would be actually quite healthy? That maybe gaming with their mates could be brilliant. Maybe Mm -hmm. a family movie could be exactly what everybody needs. But maybe um, them up in their room is the thing that you specifically don't want. And this is where you say, listen, just for the next two days, we're going to be together. We're not going to have that. Just specifically that one. Everything else I'm letting go, but we're not going to have that. And that's forewarned as forearmed. That's where you think about this now. What do I yeah. definitely want to put in place and get rid of? And what? And you know the way we, we said before, like there can be a lot of fights around this time and there can be a lot of war around this time. To me, the, you know, you pick your battles. This could be just the battle and leave it at that. And there mightn't be any other battle you choose to pick. 
You can say, I'm just going to be because I'm just I've had it with tech in my own life as a mother. And I do think we are all we are all getting sucked into this. Oh, my God. It's frightening. It's literally yeah. frightening. I was there giving my, my daughter, uh, you know, a quite a pompous ceremony, uh, sermon, <laughs> sermon about uh, not a ceremony, a sermon about her tech use. And she was like, you literally have your phone in your hand as you're talking to me. <laughs> I did and I was right and you were live streaming the whole conversation it is so we all have it we're being caught so badly it's massive multi-billion industry is been created to keep us on our screens it's impacting us all so you know parents really need to have to you know be part of this yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And it also brings back this very basic principle of like model the behavior that you want to see in your kids, you know, lead by example. And it's um, it's way easier said than done. But I think the more we are mindful of how the technology is pulling our attention, the more we need to be deliberate about creating, carving out some times where we're not a slave to it. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, I feel myself. I was talking to Benjamin Boyce about this the other day. I feel it. I feel this thing. Yeah. Online, but I I feel it like pulling me. It's really disturbing. So when you look at the gender explosion, because so many people, somebody just said to me the other day, like what happened? Where did this come from? And you've got to say, well, online, something about these digital natives, which these children are, they're, they honestly are seeing themselves as more like almost robots, you know what I mean? Almost just be, that they can input, you know, chemicals into their body and they will go a different direction. It feels a very digital way of looking at life. Yes. And I think we need to acknowledge that, that that actually isn't really being understood on a deeper level, that this is a kind of a almost a computerized way of understanding their human essence. Mm-hmm. And like, when you think about that, you go, oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and what's really interesting that just popped into my head is like, this is part of the reason why it's also very hard to explain to older family yeah. members what the heck is happening with your kid. So like, I wanted to talk a little bit about grandparents, because before we started our recording, you said, in my experience, grandparents almost never know. They don't tell the grandparents. And I've heard from many parents, you know, like, how would I explain this to my mother who's in her 80s? How in the world can I explain what's happening to her if she hears that her granddaughter or her grandson believes themselves to be transgender? In her mind, it's going to seem like such a bizarre anomaly not understanding that, oh, there's literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of kids just like this. So this is an internet-driven phenomenon, which makes it even harder to communicate with the older generations of our family members who don't really understand what the internet does. And to be practical, what should the parents do in that context? You've got grandparents who don't understand the impact. I remember you and I once attended a conference around gender and you and I were talking to each other because we were saying great conference, great in understanding and they don't get the Internet. They don't yeah. understand. And so therefore, I, I, almost 70, 80, 90 percent of gender they had missed, even though they had yes. their psychology. The psychology yes. was brilliant. 
but they missed the you cannot understand this without understanding the internet and the impact so what should parents do well i mean in the piece that i've written i think i i gave some ideas you know you of what to consider if you have a, a parent, let's say I'm talking to the parents of the gender questioning kid. If your parent is someone who you think you can explain ROGD to, I think it would be valuable to loop them in. If, if they are someone who's emotionally regulated, you know, I mean, there are also grandparents who have their own like very sensitive natures and maybe they would just cry every single time they saw their grandchild. If that's the case, that's not going to be helpful, right? Um, But, you know, one thing that I might suggest is you can talk to them about other kinds of psychic epidemics. You might talk to them about, they probably remember on Oprah watching this woman talk about her 53 personalities, because I remember seeing that, and my grandmother used to watch talk shows yes. with me, yeah, <laughs> much to my mother's chagrin, right? But you might say, like, do you remember when on Oprah and Geraldo and all these people had these multiple personality disorders on and the satanic panic? There have been many epidemics And like then this. you'd go, very ABC, that was a psychic epidemic in its way. It yeah. kind of traveled, it was self kind of mono, kind of almost... It became contagious among certain vulnerable types. Yeah. And also psychologists and psychotherapists, they didn't cover themselves in glory and they became very excitable about it. So you're mm-hmm. really explaining it before you say, and we've got something going on in our family. So you're yeah. giving them the baby steps. You don't just kind of go gender, trans, you know what I mean? You go yeah, way I would, back. I would really go far back to explain I mean, and, you know, people from that generation also are very wise and they know teenagers are impressionable. They they copy each other. So you can maybe start with this um, kind of like 101 things they already know, things they intuitively know to be true. And then you can say, you know, we've really been struggling with this on our own, but we wanted to talk to you about what's happening with so-and-so. Yeah. I remember my own mother was trying to understand it. She's 87. And and she said to me, and I I realized the gap in, like she would have grown up when there was nobody was gay or lesbian. So so, there's such a gap. Or secretly, to be fair. Oh yeah, oh God, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But you really didn't see much of it. And she said to me, and I, I saw the gap when she said it, she said, but why don't they just join the lesbian society? <laughs> oh my God, all our lesbian listeners are like, we wish there was a lesbian society. Bring us and to it. Was it. this lovely idea that you'd sign up to the lesbian society. Oh. And I thought, isn't that lovely? And I was like, okay, yeah, and you're right. I should have gone in. I shouldn't have gone in talking about trans About the gender. gender. Yeah. I should have been talking about psychic epidemics. And I should have talked about, you know, different kind of, Uh, Like even like you wrote so eloquently about the lobotomy and there's so many other things that have happened in different contexts that it's extraordinary. And you could even go back to all sorts of kind of historic epidemics that have happened. Kind of go and read up about psychic epidemics in history and how specifically it's very often that teenage girls are the most vulnerable. It's to do with their empathy, which is gorgeous, that if one one person in the group is feeling it they want to feel it in kind of solidarity yeah with the other person so they jump in, in in their enthusiasm which is so lovely and sweet but that's where I would go 
if I was trying to explain it, I would steer right out of gender and go right into epidemics and psychic epidemics. Yeah, the gender really throws people off, including parents, because they get stuck in the weeds. What I like to say, it's a term from working in the service industry when you're like overwhelmed and you can't remember all the orders. But parents get in the weeds and they're trying to analyze their gender presentation and how feminine or masculine they are. But really, if we pull back bigger picture, this isn't exactly about gender. So one thing I will recommend and include in the show notes is a brilliant YouTube video of a lecture by Debbie Nathan, who's a journalist who reported on uh, multiple personality disorders, and particularly the book Sybil, which was published in the 70s. And it was an account, it was a kind of a fictional account, but kind of a true account co written by a psychiatrist and her patient. It was about this patient came into this doctor, and the doctor had been Uh, nurturing this theory about multiple personalities before ever seeing the patient. And the patient came in one day and started talking like a little girl or something. So as you can imagine how this story unfolds, the the doctor, the therapist, psychiatrist, I don't remember her title. She just absolutely ran with this. And over the course of therapy with this woman, convinced the woman that she had many personalities. So she, they co-wrote this book with the help of an author, I think, called Sybil. And after the book Sybil was published, lo and behold, thousands of women all around the U.S. started believing themselves to have multiple personalities. And then, of course, this made it to all the talk shows. So it's, it's a fascinating and incredibly similar parallels. Like even the way all the personalities can kind of spin out of control. At first it was like, oh, I have one personality. And then within, you know, a couple of years, people were claiming hundreds of personalities, which reminds me a lot of the gender flags. You know, at first it was like, there's, there's trans masculine, trans feminine, but now there's like every kind of gender imaginable. So when you talk about subjective experiences that are really constructed based on suggestibility, the possibilities are infinite. So if you're trying to help somebody understand, it might be interesting to look at Debbie Debbie Nathan's work. Another thing that's brilliant, I'm going to look it up myself because I haven't seen that, although I know a lot about that. It's just such such a parallel Mm -hmm. with what happened. An interesting little phenomenon that happened in Leroy in New York in 2012, teenagers got ticks and it spread through the town. And it's, it's on CBC, NBC News, one of those <laughs> channels. And you can actually easily look it up. We'll put, it, we'll put a link to it in the, in the, in the links. But um, these kids genuinely all got ticks and they ended up on talk shows. They ended up everywhere. Aaron Brockovich came to visit them because they thought it was some sort of poison in the, in, the, in the land. And it turned out that it was a social contagion. The big difference was that the doctors thought it was a social contagion from the beginning and they, they played it cool. You know what I mean? Everybody else became hysterical, but the doctors seemed to know quite early what was going on. And it faded. Within a year, it had faded out, and they weren't. They, their ticks had gone. That's the type of thing that's very interesting conversation, but before you go anywhere near gender, because I think it's so complex. We underestimate, we who are in the weeds, underestimate how shockingly complex it is until somebody starts asking questions, which happened to me over the weekend. And I realized, oh, my God, I have like three hours to answer this. I can't answer this in even 
Even in 40 minutes, I couldn't really answer this question. And now what do I do? Become a ranter? Or do I, or where do I go with this? Yeah. So you don't forget, like, and very much good luck to everybody over this Thanksgiving and over the holiday seasons. But really, don't forget, you probably know PhD level more than everybody else. And so you're going to have to ABC it. So play it cool, bring it back, be kind to yourself and just choose carefully what you're going to actually say, because you've got a mass of knowledge that nobody else yeah. knows. And it's interesting about Leroy because there was a recent paper that came out um, in a psychological journal called Stop That. It's not Tourette's, but a new type of mass psychogenic illness. And this refers to all of the kids who are watching TikTok videos about Tourette's and then showing up at doctor's offices with Tourette's-like symptoms. And what's frightening is they're actually very much like gender identity. They're being medicated. So the doctors are taking the child's like self-diagnosis without exploring how did these symptoms develop. And they're medicating them as though they have legitimate Tourette's. So there are so many examples that you can use. And you're right, Stella. A lot of these parents have like PhD level knowledge and sometimes more than clinicians themselves. So there's, I think this is, we've landed on something important, which I don't think we predicted, but if you need to explain gender to your loved ones, start with explaining psychic epidemics, mass psychogenic illness, other kinds of socially mediated psychological phenomenon, and that can give the context to help your loved ones understand what might be happening for your child's gender. Yeah, it's going to be very hard for some people. It's going to be very joyfully joyful unexpectedly for other people but the point I think more than anything we're saying is if you can at all get some moments of joy kind of try and connect on any level with your child especially in the more simple ways and you'll make it through thanks for joining us this week on gender a wider lens this podcast is sponsored by rhyme and genspect and our listener support means a lot to us the best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media. And if you'd like to make a financial contribution, you can donate on our website. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.